So again, uh, part of the um, idea or strategy behind the guided meditations during the course is to directly experiment to see if applying the mind in what appears to us to be a wholesome direction are there consequences to those intentional actions to, to intend the heart toward including not as opposed to being averse or disconnected right? to include to not be averse not aversion is wholesome so being wholesome and then to be generous to care to wish well so what is the effect of that on the mind now, of course, we can't evaluate it unless we actually made that effort, you know, because the karmic uh, effect arises when there's an application. It's like I could have a little intention blip through my mind, I don't want to kill you, you know, but there's not there's not much karmic effect to that. But if my mind, in a sense, takes a hold of that thought and starts to think about how I might do that effectively and get away with it, well, all of a sudden now I'm creating some karmic fruit. There are some consequences. And then if I actually put some plan into effect, then more, you know, more and more. And, of course, culminating and actually doing it, which... Obviously, would have tremendous, a tremendous effect on my mind. Let alone, in terms of the external world and all the things that might reverberate from that kind of action. So we can have the general sense. So yeah, at Common Ground, we're doing a loving kindness practice. But if we don't actually engage the mind intentionally in that activity over and over, re-engaging it, applying it. So many other intentions, like the intention to space out, the intention to think about the debate tomorrow night, the intention to think about what happened earlier today. So the work is to find, keep coming back to that intention. That That's a karmic act to come back to the loving-kindness practice instead of all the other stuff. That's what has the consequence to just do our best and to not be pulled here or there. That restraining and that redirecting toward what appears to be wholesome and in a sense giving ourselves to that wholesome intention, allowing that wholesome intention to act out, you know, through the using the imagination, using the sensations of the breath, using our thought, we're acting on that intention. And we're creating a karmic force. There's a consequence to doing that. And if what we're doing is wholesome, then by that very definition, what we mean by wholesome is that it will have, it will set in motion a positive effect. We'll start immediately to feel better. And it, in a sense, cuts a groove so that we'll feel better, more likely feel better down the road because we'll more likely fall into that mind state of loving-kindness because the groove's a little deeper 
because of that work we did of redirecting, coming back, starting over, amplifying it through our intention, our wholesome effort, you know. Like the Buddha says, the way that we take care of the mind is we not only recognize wholesome states, but we develop them, right? We, we strengthen them through being mindful of them, being mindful of the loving feeling, being mindful of the willingness to include, the fearlessness of including whoever we're bringing to mind or whatever we're bringing to mind. And that's really what we'll be doing this week in terms of tonight's discussion and next week or this next week's practice and a little bit next week too. Uh, next week we'll, we'll move on talking about karma and rebirth. Um, but we'll see how much conversation we have tonight, whether we want to continue it next week, where we're really looking at, well, there is this thing called karma, and this is really, as I've mentioned in the last few weeks, this is the preliminary understanding of wisdom or experience of wisdom. From a Buddhist teaching point of view, when we start understanding that there is cause and effect, and we can participate in the world of cause and effect, then that means we should be able to set in motion wholesome consequences for ourselves. We should be able to set in motion really good things. There's a really uh, interesting sutta. Five desirable things. This is Andy Olensky's translation in the um, Buddha Nikaya 5.43. Five desirable things. There are five things that are wished for, loved and agreeable, yet rarely gained in the world. What five? Long life, beauty, happiness, fame, and rebirth in heaven. Right? So even in Buddhist cosmology, there's this idea of heaven, really uh, exalted realms of existence, beautiful realms of existence, including in the higher realms, uh, immaterial realms. So you don't even have an ethereal body, like we might imagine celestial beings having. having. You're just immaterial loving kindness. And in those realms, you exist for a very, very long time. I forget how they describe it, but it's uh, uh, out of this world, literally. The sort of span of your lifetime when you're in one of the immaterial realms. So if you get really good at loving-kindness practice, and your mind can completely absorb in, so you don't need the phrases, you're well beyond the phrases or any of that sort of conceptualizing, and the mind has completely absorbed in the experience of loving-kindness, and you do that a lot, and then at the time of death, because that's such a strong imprint in the mind, instead of being afraid of what's going to happen, the mind establish itself in that. So in the next moment, after the body falls apart and dies, you're reborn, evidently, in one of these immaterial realms for a long, long time. This sort of this glow of loving kindness. But, so rebirth in one of the beautiful realms. So then the Buddha goes on, he says, but of those five things, householder, I do not teach that they are to be obtained by prayer or vows. Now, the first thing that's interesting is he's giving this talk to householders because he probably wouldn't talk this way to the monks and nuns. 
So, but he knows that householders generally are interested in a long life and beauty and happiness and fame and then rebirth in heaven. That's sort of like an ordinary set of desires for a typical person. But of those five things, householder, I do not teach that they are to be obtained by prayer or vows. So basically wanting them to happen or praying for them to happen doesn't cause them to happen. He says, if one could obtain these by prayer or vows, who would not obtain them? Obtain, obtain them, right? Because that's, you know, it's pretty easy <laughs> if all you have to do is ask for them or make the vow to have it. So then he goes on, he says, for a noble disciple who wishes to have a long life or beauty or happiness or fame or rebirth in heaven, it is not befitting that one should pray for them or take delight in doing so. One should rather follow a path of life that is conducive to longevity, to beauty, to happiness, fame, and rebirth in heaven. By following such a path, one will obtain, be it divine or humor, human. So, and this is the whole point of karma. So what, I mean, this is totally appropriate. As an ordinary human being, wanting ordinary sorts of stuff, it's totally appropriate to think, well, what would the causes be to get that? You know, if you want a partner, that's for whatever reason, despite, you know, what other people say who have partners, <laughs> you really want a partner, you know, then to ask yourself, okay, what are the causes to getting a loving partner? As opposed to spending our nights wanting a partner or whatever you might do. Like even now, you probably have seen, um, is it called The Secret, the book that was written about sort of cultivating a wish? Um, I guess I don't really know it, uh, just people have mentioned it to me, but it sounds like it's related to the positive thinking. You know, if you just sort of put it out there, there's some kind of karma that you've created by putting it out there that will bear fruit. But I think it's a very, very superficial understanding of karma because actually, what are we putting out? When I'm wanting to win the lottery, you know, and I'm putting that out, wanting to win the lottery, actually what's being generated in my mind is a sense of lack, a sense of wanting. So the force that gets generated and reinforced and, and set in motion into the future is the feeling of lack, is the feeling of wanting. That's the karma of that kind of wishing or hoping. So in the Buddhist tradition, and this is not just in the Buddhist tradition, if you want to, if you want abundance, you practice generosity. Because when we're really practicing giving things away, you can't truly give without feeling abundant or feeling like you you have something to give. Otherwise, it's not a free gift. So when we practice being generous, it creates the uh, force in the mind of experiencing more of that feeling of abundance. The mind will be attracted, in a sense, I don't know how it works, and the Buddha says if you try to figure out how it works, it's one of the four imponderables, and you'll go, you'll either have vexation or you'll go insane. But somehow the mind finds its way 
to more and more experiences of that abundance, of having a lot and giving it away, and that joy of sharing and giving. So that's what I thought we'd take up tonight, is to, I'll share a little bit more, some of the discourses, but to be looking at what have we learned about setting in motion good results. I mean, it, it begs the question, well, what do we want? What sort of future do we want for ourselves? It's like that old thing we used to play with as kids, you know, where if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? Where if you really feel like karma is there for the taking, meaning we can create, set in motion any kind of life world we want, what kind of world would we set in motion? What kind of life would we set in motion? I mean, the great tragedy, if this is in fact true, is that we've been setting in life, we've been setting life in motion for a long, long time, from a Buddhist cosmological view, for, for endless number of lifetimes, we've been setting in motion, and this is the best we could do. <laughs> I mean, it shows a lot, maybe a lack of creativity on our part that we couldn't think of something more exalted than this, you know, knee pain, for example, and hemorrhoids, and, you know, whatever else might be going on for some of us. And uh, so, it's a, it's sort of a, I think we, we shy away from that taking responsibility for what we're setting in motion for ourselves, and what might be possible. For example, in the guided meditation tonight, you know, maybe some of us felt a really nice feeling in that. You know, a feeling unlike what we normally felt for the rest of the day. Well, why wouldn't we be setting in motion those causes, those causes and effects, so that we could be abiding in that state all the time? I mean, either it wasn't so good, in which case... Were you really trying? <laughs> or maybe it was kind of good. You know, it felt kind of nice to be abiding with feelings of loving kindness. Breathing them in, sending them out, feeling really in the middle of things, safe in the experience of loving kindness. So why aren't we attracted to sort of furthering those causes more and more? You know, it's sort of, what are we thinking? You know, especially when we look back on what sort of causes we've been setting in motion all day long. Worrying, you know, things that, you know, getting involved in agitating things. And setting in motion agitation. <laughs> and greed, and aversion, and fear, and, you know, disconnection, and all the different things. So I read the first week this uh, famous um, statement from the Buddha around equanimity and karma, where he says, I am owner of my actions, heir of my actions, actions are the womb from which I have sprung, actions are my relations, actions are my protection, whatever action I do, good or bad, of these I shall be, I shall become the air.
So this is from the Middle Link Discourses 136, if you want to look it up. The Buddha says, There are four kinds of persons to be found existing in the world. What four? So he says, well, there's, a, there's the type of person who kills and takes what's not given, misconducts himself or herself in sexual ple- pleasures, right? sexual misconduct, speaks falsehood, speaks maliciously, speaks harshly, gossips. He or she is, covet- uh, is covetous, has a mind of ill will, holds wrong view. And then on the dissolution of the body, after death, one reappears in a state of hell, deprivation, and an unhappy destination. Right? So that's one person who's acting unskillfully, and then upon death, ends up in hell, in a bad place, bad conditions, painful state. That makes sense to us, whatever that might be. And if you don't like the idea of this life and the next life, just think about this in terms of a day, you know. You misbehave, you screw around, you do all the wrong things. Well, then later, that next day, the next moment, you're not going to feel good. You're going to be in hell because you're going to be feeling the effect of of having done a lot of bad things. That's one case. But that doesn't define all of it, all of our experiences, right? Because he gives a second person who does the same sort of bad actions, you know, the five, breaking the five precepts, basically. Wrong speech, wrong sexual conduct, taking what's not giving, harming living beings, intoxicating the mind, wrong view. But upon death, this person reappears in a happy destination, even in the heaven realm. Well, that's sort of interesting. And he says, as to this person, either earlier they did a good action to be felt as pleasant, or later they did a good action to be felt as pleasant, or at the time of death one acquired and undertook right view. Because of that, upon death, one reappears in a happy destination, even a heavenly world. But since one has... Uh, since one has here killed living beings, held wrong view, he or she will experience the result of that either here and now or in the next rebirth or in some subsequent existence. So even though somebody who's been naughty might be reborn or have a nice day the next day, eventually that whatever was set in motion, eventually that will arise for that person. And then he gives the other two examples. Somebody who doesn't break the precepts, somebody who's living a wholesome life upon death, they might reappear in a really good place. The next day might be really good. Or, the more surprising is, you know, you live a good life, or you have a really wholesome day, but the next day, the next life, you're in hell. Things aren't so good. And so, basically, in this discourse, the Buddha is saying, you can't say too much about anybody, or about anybody, any mind stream, or whatever you want to refer to what we normally call a person, by what they're experiencing right now. You might bump into somebody who's really in hell, and you can't say too much about what they did previously. Because that, whatever it is that they're experiencing, we don't know, we can't really figure out where the causes of that are, 
But we do know through observation that life is lawful. That that just didn't drop from outer space. Does it mean that the person did it that's misunderstanding the teachings of the Buddha to say, well, they're getting their just deserts? Because what it says is that hell that that person's experienced or that really good state that that person is experiencing, it's lawful. That it has arisen lawfully due to something that was set in motion previously. What else would it be? Because I know a lot of people have trouble with that idea that difficulty in life is lawful. But if it isn't lawful, then what would it be? Random? I mean, that would be one alternative, I guess. But, you know, things don't appear. I mean, as we study our life carefully, they don't appear to be random. They appear to follow. Things appear to be conditional, one thing after another. This moment conditioning the next moment. So here the Buddha is saying that uh, that when something difficult arises for us, we should assume that this is how it is now. It's lawful. We should never second guess what arises for us. As if like somebody like God or nature made a mistake. And this shouldn't be arising for us like it's arising for us. We should just assume, yeah, this is how it is. Given everything that's been set in motion, it can't be other than this right now. So the question is, what can I do now so that what I'm contributing by, what I do now, what I'm intending now, how I'm engaging this moment now, what can I do now that will eventually be the cause for good things to happen. And the thing is, when we're doing something appropriate now, we may not make all the pain go away, but relating to that in a skillful way, relating to the pain or the difficult circumstances in a skillful way, will have a modifying effect on whatever painful circumstances we have. In the same way, if we relate to a painful, difficult circumstance with ignorance or with hatred, it will just make it worse. It will feel worse for us and probably cause harm for other people. That's really the attitude we want to have about karma. What can I do now that will add happiness to the stream of all things? You know, to the unfolding, the conditional unfolding of all things. That's the appropriate attitude. Now, a worldly person, you know, like uh, the Buddha was talking about householders, sometimes translated as worldly people, or people with not so much of a spiritual orientation, they just sort of want something for themselves, like, I want to be in heaven, I want to be beautiful, I want wealth, I want, you know, long life. But what we realize is that actually... Just karmically, it feels better to engage this moment with the motivation to set in motion something that's good for everybody. That actually feels better for me to care about all beings. This is the thing about altruism and compassion. 
it makes sense. It's not how we're taught. You know, a lot of the ways we're taught, sort of this sort of hair shirt version of morality and spirituality is that we should be compassionate. We should be loving. It's not easy. It's kind of a burden to have to be kind and to be compassionate. But from this understanding, with karma as our as a sort of wisdom grounding, where we're really looking at cause and effect, we'll come to the conclusion that caring for everybody, wanting to set in motion wholesome results for everybody, actually feels good. It feels better than just being concerned about my own well-being. So we're naturally, if we pay attention, we're naturally led to caring about everybody. It's really a narrow, dark place to just want our own well-being. It doesn't actually feel that good. Now, the Buddha, um, I've been mentioning, he sort of had two sets of teachings. When he was talking to householders, um, he basically talked about karma, like, well, you really... Like, uh, like that first sutta that I read suggests, if you really want good things to happen in your life, you want to get to heaven, you want to have a really good situation in your next life, whatever that is, or have people love you in this life, well, instead of wishing for it, or once he, he bumped into a Brahmin youth and, uh, there are some rituals at the time of the Buddha, maybe even still today, in Hinduism, in the sort of traditional religious culture of India, of uh, the Brahmins, the priestly castes. You know, they would do this sort of blessing in the four directions and with some water and maybe other sort of aspects to the ritual that I'm not remembering right now. And the Buddha said, well, if you really... He asked the boy why he was doing that. He said, well, it's it's a way of taking care of my parents, you know, honoring my parents and blessing them and protecting them and taking care of myself. And then the Buddha says something like, well, if you really want to take care of yourself, this is how you should do that blessing. And basically teaching him about morality. Because in Buddhism, the way the Buddha taught, rather, there are three actions that, from a worldly point of view, for somebody who just wants good things to happen to them. You know, so we have this self-centered point of view. Says there are three things you can do that will actually make good things happen for you. Dana, Sila, Bhavana. You hear this a lot in sort of it's a kind of central teaching. So Dana, you probably recognize that word is generosity. Sila is integrity. Bhavana or uh, is uh, mental training or meditation practice, or just uh, developing balance of mind, developing ease and clarity of mind, the good instrument of the mind and heart, so that it can see clearly in life. You do those three things, or any of those three things, good things will start to happen to you. And I mean, this would be really neat for us to all agree that, okay, for the next ten years, we really commit to these three meritorious actions, and we'll see in ten years whether there's any noticeable effect. You know, whether we're 
whether the, our activity of dana, generosity in all the different ways, moral integrity in all the different ways we've cultivated, developing the mind in all the different ways we've developed it over the years, whether we have more gold. I mean, all the gold that we want, the happiness, ease, health, friendships, um, all the things that people actually want in life. I mean, it seems like a worthy experiment. I mean, the alternative would be to sort of engage the rat race, manipulate, you know, whatever else we do to make good things happen for us. And we know what that's like. (laughs) And we often feel uh, betrayed because we work hard and good things don't happen. I remember I've heard even teachers say, you know, when when things get tough in their life, they start to give. You know, immediately, okay, I'm just going to start giving things away. Give money away. Just start being generous. To kind of, like, well, I'm investing in the future. You know, more moral restraint. So we're investing in the future, developing the mind, the goodness of the mind, the clarity of the mind, the balance of the mind. Investing in the future. Imagine if the world, instead of you know putting money away for retirement, that we took the really long view. You know, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, and really got interested in generosity. One of the things that seems, you know, from my limited experience, seems to distinguish Buddhist cultures is the this sort of big deal about generosity. And of course, you know, it's not without its own neurotic tendencies, because it often revolves in a, in a funny way around the monks, and being generous to the monks and to the monasteries. But you can just see how much joy and happiness comes uh, from the lay people being generous, the people who don't have too much being generous. And it's surprising because, you know, objectively, they might feel like I don't have much, but they seem pretty happy in their lives. Again, my limited experience. This is another sita. What one intends, and what one plans, and whatever one has a tendency toward, This becomes the basis for the maintenance of consciousness. When there is a basis, there is a support for the establishing of consciousness. When consciousness is established and has has come to growth, there is inclination. Where there is inclination, there is coming and going. When there is coming and going, there is passing and being reborn. When there is passing and being reborn, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. If one does not intend, and one does not plan, but still has a tendency towards something, this becomes the basis for the maintenance of consciousness. But when one does not intend, one does not plan, and one does not have the tendency towards anything, no basis exists for the maintenance of consciousness. So I wanted to 
I wanted to share that. We'll, we'll go back to that next week and possibly the week after when we talk about rebirth because it's really pointing in that direction. And this is one of the more challenging aspects of the Buddhist teaching is understanding rebirth and the primacy of intention and then understanding Nibbana as the non-attachment to intention, to any intentions, not even good intentions. So initially, we're working really hard to replace bad intentions, intentions that have to do with aversion and greed and delusion, with good intentions. And, you know, relatively speaking, it's okay to get attached, to be interested in good intentions, and to cultivate good intentions. But then eventually, even that, wanting to be good, wanting to be generous, even that attachment needs to be abandoned. But right now, we're just looking at the level of understanding the difference between identification with bad intentions in the mind and seeing and identifying good intentions, acting out good intentions. Wanting to set good things in motion. A more simple way of saying this is from the Dhammapada, right at the beginning, what we... Uh, we are what we think. All that we, all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you. As the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you. As your shadow, unshakable. And this is from another discourse. Fruitful as the act of giving is, Yet is it, it is still more fruitful to go with confident heart for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. So taking refuge in this path, in other words, and undertake the five precepts. Fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain loving kindness in one's heart for only as long as the milking of a cow. Fruitful as that is, you know, in terms of the karmic fruit, it is still more fruitful to maintain the perception of impermanence in your heart, in your mind, only for the long, as long as the snapping of a finger. So, this brings to mind the uh, later commentaries. I mentioned that the Buddha talked about the three meritorious actions of giving, of integrity, of developing the mind. But then later in the commentaries, seven more were added. Reverence, service, transference of merit. So we, it's this, this sort of attitude in the mind that whatever good is coming to me because of my past good actions, it's like we correct a, uh, make a bypass. May all of that go right back out, you know, to my mom or to the world. So that we're transferring our goodness, sharing the goodness. Some of you know we do this often at the center, at the end of a sit or at the end of a, a gathering, and we just feel the wholesomeness of being together. And then we say, you know, whatever good causes have been set in motion being here together, may they be directed out, shared with all beings without exception. And we might even name some beings or a parent, for example, that has died, and that may this act of generosity somehow support my mom. When my mom died last uh, April, you know, I gave some money away 
uh, to, I thought, some worthy places. And I had the intention in my mind that whatever goodness comes from the fact of generosity, may it somehow support her, wherever she is, however she is. So transference, transference of merit. The next is rejoicing in others' merit. That's kind of, that's an act of merit. So you see really good things happen to people. Boy, he was born with a beautiful smile. Or, you know, he was born with, you know, all this sort of good luck. And instead of being envious, we rejoice in it. Well, how great that must be to have such a beautiful smile, to have such good fortune. You know, great for you. May, may that be a cause for happiness for you. And then expounding the doctrine, right? Sharing the teachings, being involved in the teachings in different ways, listening to the teachings is a meritorious action, and rectification of views. And this, this really helps us understand that, you know, that more fruitful than taking refuge in this path, or taking the precepts, or practicing loving kindness for as long as it takes to milk a cow, you know, a moment, you know, a moment of understanding how ephemeral experience is, life is, because that's the rectification of views. Wrong view is somehow thinking that things won't change. You know, that whatever good I have will be mine forever. So maybe I have, like I do, I, I have a really good life now. I have a great partner. I'm pretty healthy. I have a great job. I have a lot of friends. I feel loved. I feel like I have a lot of love. I have enough to live in a comfortable way. But any sort of sense that all of that goodness will matter in the great scheme of things, that's called wrong view. So having even an instant of seeing the ephemeral nature means that the mind, the the view shifts. And now the heart's interested in something, a, a deeper, a more substantial refuge, instead of things that are worldly, even really wholesome worldly things, like having a good job, having good friends, you know, having a good uh, sort of habits. So those are the ten meritorious actions, the three from the suttas, and then the seven added later, in the commentaries after the time of the Buddha. Well, a lot more to read, but I think I want to open it up so we have about 15 minutes to share. Maybe I'll just read one thing from Andy Olensky's article, Primordial Soup. This you have a link for on the website, and I put a couple others around rebirth up on the website today that you can go to. So the, I put this on the website last week, Primordial Soup Wrestling with wholesome and unwholesome impulses. And he says, the Buddha recognized this bipolar aspect of human nature, referring to both the wholesome and the unwholesome impulses in ourselves. Right? Everybody know your unwholesome and wholesome impulses? And just to appreciate, that's just how it is. We have impulses that lead to hell. I mean, I do. And I'm assuming uh, everybody in the room does. But I also now recognize I have impulses that lead to heaven, too, that lead to really good results. 
The words for these in Pali, kusala and akusala, do not mean good and bad, or right and wrong, but rather something like healthy and unhealthy. It is not only actions themselves that are understood to be either healthy or unhealthy, but also both the emotions that motivate actions and the personal consequences that derive from them. A kind act is rooted in the living emotion of feeling kindness towards someone, and the result of having committed a kind act is that one is that one becomes a kinder person and more likely to feel kindness again. Right? So that, you see, that makes it really concrete. The karmic fruit is obvious. When I'm, when I act authentically kind, then right now, in that moment, my mind is the mind, the mind stream or the heart stream, you know, whatever that is that's unfolding moment to moment. That is the mind, that is the heart that has just committed a kind act. So what's going forward includes that moment of kindness. And then whatever that thing that's going forward does, it's affected by having just done that kind act. So that's how karma goes forward, how, how the fruit of our actions get carried forward. A hateful act is rooted in the in an emotion of aversion or ill will towards someone. And by acting it out, one becomes an incrementally more hateful person and strengthens the conditions for the reappearance of more hatred. It is by such entirely natural processes that we mold our personalities in a selfless world of cause and effect. This being the case, ethics becomes a matter of skill. When we draw upon our more primitive reflexes, we tend to create suffering for ourselves and others. And when we act upon more cooperative impulses, then both personal and collective suffering is diminished. The quality of our intention determines the quality of our disposition, which in turn determine which in turn determines the quality of our intentions, our intention. If our goal ultimately is to be happier, and to live in a better world, then it becomes skillful to abandon what causes harm and to develop what increases well-being. The opportunity to do this arises and passes away every moment. The considerably, the considerable mental and emotional powers that we possess as humans can be placed in the service of healthy or unhealthy impulses. We have amply demonstrated our ability to be greedy, hateful, and even ignorant in some truly brilliant and effective ways. But such actions are generally not healthy. By uh, succeeding in getting what we want for ourselves in the short run, we often harm ourselves and others more deeply in the long run. Winning every battle, we slowly but surely lose the war. I think this accurately describes the cur current global predicament of the human species. That's the truth. And the Buddha says this very directly somewhere in the discourses. He says, you know, that a wise person would gladly let go of a pleasant experience here and now to gain something that is more deeply pleasant, more deeply healing later. Right? And that's really a sign of human maturity or basic human wisdom is that we're willing to forego the, you know, the sort of pleasantness of acting out our impulse 
which has long-term negative consequences, for the benefit that comes from not being a jerk when we're, you know, have the impulse to be a jerk or not taking what isn't ours when that's our impulse. Anyway, we have um, about ten minutes. We want to stop about five minutes before Jeff's going to share a little bit about Donna tonight. So we have a little bit more than ten minutes. Any questions, of course, or any experiences in your own life? And remember, generally, we're talking tonight about your experience with setting in motion good results and how you failed at that, how you succeeded at that, questions you have about that, what you've learned by observing others. So what comes to mind? And please say your name. Well, it's a thought that's charged with a view. So like an aversive thought, it's really hot in here. Actually, it is really hot in here. You know, and then you're, we're averse to it, or I'm averse to it, the heat. So, the thought, it's hot in here, that's just a thought. But what makes it, makes the intention, you know, to not like it, I'm not liking it, that intention to not like, the intention to want to push it away, what makes that a karmic act is really the view, it's, it's reinforcing that view. So not only is the thought itself unpleasant, because it's a contracted state in the heart and mind and body. But it's reinforcing, it's setting motion the mind that's more likely to be in that contracted state in the future. So it's really the charge that, that comes out of the view, the underlying view, that makes the intention skillful or unskillful. Mental formation. So, and then when a feeling arises, you know, we, we have, we're sensitive, we have the six sense gates and having sense contact and, and, uh, when we have contact, we have a feeling, right? And then when there's not mindfulness there, what mindfulness does, well let's say, let's take it first without mindfulness. So without mindfulness there's a feeling, like, oh, I don't like this heat, I'm sensitive, Sense contact, I feel the heat, I don't like the heat, so that feeling tone of not liking, and then the wrong view is there, not mindfulness, but wrong view, and so I, I cling, I'm craving cool air, you know, I'm clinging to the idea it would be so much nicer if somebody opened a window, or something like that, because with that feeling, that unpleasant feeling, I see no choice but to take it personally, and to act, intentionally act, even if I can't get up because I'm giving a talk, I can intend, you know, to want it to be. So it can be just a mental karmic act. But it's still an act. And I'm acting on my aversion. So when mindfulness is there, it sees the tendency to be averse to the heat, but it sees that it's unnecessary, that it's it's unskillful. And so it's, the impulse is there to be averse, but in a sense, the mind 
doesn't believe it needs to be acted out because it knows better. So it's there, mindfully aware of the impulse over and over again because as soon as my mind gets spaced out, I'll be acting out that intention. So that vigilance of not uh, forgetting that there's heat, that the mind doesn't like it, and that that not liking of it is impersonal. It's just the tendency to not like. And so we're not acting, in a sense, we're not acting on the, that intention by identifying with it, by taking it personally. It's there. You know, that sort of, I could fall into that hole in a minute, but I'm remembering that's a hole that I don't need to fall into. Does that make sense? Other thoughts come to mind. Yeah, Julie. A little louder. Yeah, exactly. And that's a good, it's actually, this is just good training anyway for, for us um, around the first precept. So whenever you're inclined to kill a living being, get Instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't kill living beings, which I'm not saying you shouldn't or should, but be really interested in the intention, what's happening in the mind before you kill that spider, before you kill that bug, and uh, what it's like to refrain, you know, just to notice what gets set in motion. I mean, it's, I don't think I, uh, I mean, I don't think I could intentionally kill a, an insect anymore. I think it would be too hard for me. I can do it by accident. Uh, even that feels pretty bad. When I, you know, especially because most of the time when I kill an insect by accident, it's because I was sloppy. You know, I was sweeping and there were spiders there. Or I was vacuuming and, you know, and I could have been a little bit more careful. But I was rushing or I, you know, didn't care basically. And so even though I didn't have that intention to do harm, I had the intention to not care, to not pay close attention. And even that hurts if we look. Yeah, Wendy. Yes, I think Steve Armstrong calls it the about-to moment. Yeah. But, but you know, intention, it has really three parts to it. There's Intention exists as a disposition in a latent form. You know, like we have the, we have the tendency to return to the knowing, 
but maybe not in this moment it's not manifesting. But it's there as a disposition in a latent form, right? And then certain circumstances cause that tendency, that disposition to surge into the present moment, so to speak. And then intention also then exists in a sense as the consequence of having acted on it. So it has this life as a disposition, as something that's that about to, that surging intention that we more normally associate with the word intention. But then it has to do too with the karmic fruit of that, like what imprint, now that we've acted on that intention to return to the knowing, what is the effect on the mind right now from having just done that? That also, in a sense, is the intention. So the sankara is the whole stream from the latent to the imprint that it makes in the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, time. What is your strategy when, when you have the observation it's hot in here <laughs> and not the wisdom that it's hot in Let's just take that discourse the Buddha gave where he's talking about this basically four different options, one being more powerfully wholesome and meritorious than the other. So the first one he talks about is taking refuge in the path, basically, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, but it's just been taking refuge in this path of awakening and the cultivation of sila, of sort of non-harming. So... We can, that could be something we could do when we're really hot and we don't like it. We can just establish that as our response to being really hot and not liking, okay, I'm not going to do any harm. I'm a practitioner. I'm on this path of awakening. I'm going to be interested in this. I'm going to wake up to this and I'm not going to harm myself or anybody. And, he, and then the Buddha says, but as skillful as that is, it's a lot more skillful. You know, to do this for a lifetime is really good. But more skillful than that, even for the length of time it takes to milk a cow to be established in loving kindness. So there, instead of like being the one who's trying to practice and be awake, maybe I'll relate to this with loving kindness. Because, you see, that's moving in the direction of right view. Because now, instead of me trying to be a good practitioner, you know, and not harm, and all the tightness that even that relatively wholesome attitude involves, now, I'm really, I have authentic feelings of compassion for myself and all the other hot people in the room. You know, and, and really feeling that. I mean, I'm not just, obviously to do it, you have to, the Buddha saying you're really in the experience of loving kindness or compassion for the, for that length of time. So that could be another approach, is to sort of really let the heart be moved by how difficult it is to be a human being. And sometimes you get stuck in hot rooms and it's not right to take off a sweater or there's nothing we can do about it. And and remember all the people in places that are always hot or mostly hot and humid and and uh, just appreciating the human predicament and letting the compassion really grow about that. 
Or you could, you know, for an instant, see the ephemeral nature, see the impersonal ephemeral nature of this, what we're calling me being hot. Because that, even that conception of me being hot, is something that is flashing in and out of existence. It seems to be like, no, I'm really here and I'm really hot. But that sense of permanence exists only because of the lack of attention. The mind isn't that refined. So when the mind is really imbalanced, we're interested in seeing that that whole conception of being a somebody who's hot doesn't exist in the way we're taking it to exist. And that is, uh, you know, ultimately the most liberating thing we can do when we're experiencing difficult or any kind of experience, even really beautiful experience, because what that does is it liberates the heart from any dependency whatsoever, whether it's hot or cold or in between. The happiness, the release, is independent of the conditions, whatever conditions might manifest. So it's an unconditioned release that seeing impermanence or seeing the impersonal nature reveals an unconditional release. So that's the most useful thing to do in any moment, whether it's hot or not. We should probably leave it here. Just take a few seconds, let go of the words. And grateful for Jeff. He's going to share a few words on Donna tonight. Um, once during the eight-week class, one of the more experienced community members just gives a personal reflection on their relationship to Donna and how it works here at the center. Okay, thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.